Uh, the last time I was on a roller coaster, I had a wild swing of emotions, as most of you, if you've been on one. You know, the thrill of anticipation is you're going up the steep climb for about 15 seconds. You're, you know, you're eager, you're excited. And then there's about three seconds of absolute terror, and you, you get to look down the, the edge of the slope, and you're thinking, why am I on this? But there's no getting off at that point. And then there's about another 60 seconds of wavering between terror and thrill, and the adrenaline's going. That reminds me of the book of Revelation. We're, we're just in for this ride as we read it. If you've read it before, you just think, what is going on here? Why am I on this ride? Oh, this is exciting. Oh, this is terrifying. Back and forth. Last week, uh, Dave, Pastor Dave covered a lot of important ground in chapters 6 and 7. It's going to connect to what I'm talking about this morning. We're looking at chapters 8 and 9. You can open your, open your scripture journals to that. And last week, we were introduced to this heavenly scene where God Almighty seated on His throne, and before Him comes a Lamb, and it's the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1. And the Lamb begins removing. There's this scroll that's in the right hand of the Father who's on His throne, and, and there's seven seals sealing this scroll. And the Lamb, Jesus Christ, begins removing these seals, and you've, we, we experience some, some of the judgments, explanations of judgments on this glorious, sacred scroll. It's a, a book of judgment. That's what the scroll is. Uh, and with each of those seven seals being broken, we're introduced to some scene or some event that happens, whether it's figurative or literal is, is the challenge. And then chapter 6 ends with breaking the sixth seal. And then chapter 7 is an entirely different focus. It's an interlude. It's an interjection, as we'll see in several places in Revelation, where it interrupts what seems to be the normal flow of the book. And in, that, in chapter 7, there's a scene, two, uh, two scenes, actually two groups of people, 144,000, then there's a vast multitude. And the larger point in chapter 7 seems to be that in spite of God's wrath that He, he exhibits in chapter 6... God is going to protect and seal His chosen ones in chapter 7, that even though they'll endure persecution, some of them death, God will watch over them, and He will win in the end because they belong to the Lamb of God. Well, this morning, we're going to pick up chapters 8 and 9, and you can turn there, and we're going to immediately see the vision for the Lamb breaking the seventh seal. We got, we got cut off last week with six seals. Now we're going to see the seventh seal, and we're going to find out in our scene today, we're going to get cut off at the end again. That's just the way God had John write it. And uh, so the scroll is never actually opened. It's not recorded that the scroll is actually opened, so we never get insight into that, although we could imply the, the trumpets we're going to read about is what was in the scroll. All right, let's read. We're going to go to chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 to begin with on the seventh seal that we missed last week and then the introduction to seven trumpets. When he, that would be the Lamb of God, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. 
There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So here we have this fascinating scene. After the interlude of chapter 7, here we are. The seven seals finally opened or broken. And then we get this, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, I don't think there's clocks in heaven that I'm aware of. I think the, the time frame is probably figurative, meaning a short time. But there's silence here, and it's fascinating. Why is there silence? Well, again, as we're going to find, I think literally probably over 100 times in Revelation, there's allusions back to the Old Testament. And here we can go back and look at the Old Testament. I found, I think it was three places at least, where there was silence in the presence of God in the Old Testament. And every one of them was a very serious moment. Largely, it was about judgment. And that is the case here as well, about the presence of God and His coming judgment. So this is, this silence indicates this serious, somber, holy moment that is happening in the heavenly places. And it's announcing God's judgments on the world. Then in verse 2, we're introduced to these seven trumpets. And again, we can go back to the Old Testament to find uh, answers for this, to help find some understanding. And of, of the two places I could find where seven trumpets are mentioned, one of them is very clearly, it seems to me very clearly tied in here, and this is a picture of that, or that's a picture of this one, and that was in the book of Joshua. Israel was, was going into the promised land. They're before the city of Jericho, well fortified, all these walls. They're going to go in and take the land as part of God's judgment on the land, as well as part of His blessing on His people. And what does, what does the Lord command? He commands seven priests to take seven trumpets. And they march around, the story goes, they march around for seven days, and on the seventh day, they blast their trumpets, and the walls fall down, God's people take the city, the, the, the people who have rejected the Canaanites, who have rejected God, are now under God's wrath, and God gets the victory. And so, I think that's essentially what we find here in Revelation with these seven trumpets. So, and then... Um, Let's look at a third thing in these six verses, and I think this sets the stage for this entire two chapters here. I think it's very important what we're going to look at here, verses 3, 4, and 5. It's critical to understanding what the trumpets are for. So first we see incense, then we see the prayers of the saints. What's that about? Well, we have to go back to chapter 5 and also chapter 6 to see. I think it's, I think it's tied in pretty clearly uh, and let's read a section out of chapter 6 that we looked at last week. When he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God. They were martyred for their faith and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Isn't that fascinating? These followers of Jesus have been martyred. They're in the presence of God. They're beneath the altar, we see, and they're conversing. We could say they're praying to the Lord, and they ask, what do they ask? They say, Lord, where's your justice? Where's your justice on those who killed us? And isn't that fascinating? They're not asking God to save those who killed them. 
Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not what they're asking here. They're, they're not crying out for mercy for the perpetrators. They want justice to be done by God. Does that surprise us? We'll talk more about this later, but the heart of justice springs out of this passage here, out of the very heart of God. So to yearn for justice is to imitate God. We've been made in His image. He's a just God, so it's right to want justice on the earth and in heaven. More on that later. So back to these, these few verses here in chapter 8. This incense and the prayers of the saints for justice, they go up into the presence of God and they're a pleasing aroma. You see this in the Old Testament as well. As Israel would offer sacrifices, they were pleasing aromas. It satisfied the Lord. And so God is bringing judgment here now on the earth in verses 5 and 6. And this scene in chapter 8 tells us that justice is going to come down on this earth at some point. That's what the seven trumpets are about. And it strikes me as a main point here in Revelation, not only here but also elsewhere in Revelation, is that God is vindicating and defending His own people, His children, and he's, He's bringing justice for their sake and He's also bringing justice for the sake of His holy name. Let's keep going. We'll read now about the first four trumpets as as they're blown. Verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like It wasn't a great mountain. It was like a great mountain. You're going to see that often in this section. It's describing something as like something else. Something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. It means bitterness. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. Again, we have to look back to the Old Testament, I think, to help find some connections here. And if you're a student of Revelation and a student of the Old Testament, you might notice there's some similarities here between here and between some of the the plagues that were on Egypt back in Moses' day in Exodus, around Exodus 7 through 10, somewhere in that range. And at least five of those Egyptian plagues are referred to here, things like hail and blood and darkness. And so we go back to that time in, 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 in Exodus, and we wonder, well, what's the purpose of the ten plagues against Egypt? Well, one, it was to, to rescue and to vindicate God's own people, Israel, who had been suffering for 400 years. 
God was going to rescue them. He was going to vindicate them. And second, he was going to bring justice down on the people of Egypt for the sake of his holy name and for his own people. Sounds a lot like what's going on here in Revelation. So then we have to ask, as we do throughout Revelation, are these trumpet judgments past, present, and future? There's different opinions on that. And then we have to ask, are these literal? Are they symbolic? Like, is the sun literally dim 33%? Does the water actually become blood? Those kinds of things we have to wrestle with. I'm not 100% sure I have answers on all those things. But they all represent some form of God's judgment on the earth, which is going to happen someday. I lean towards many things being a little more symbolic, I think, than I would have in the past, but surely have a respect for a literal approach, and, and I, I probably waffle back and forth between many of these things. But regardless of the view on, on many of those things, God's purpose still stands. He will defend His people, and He will bring judgment on the earth. We can be assured of that. Now let's go to chapter 9. We'll continue with the trumpets. And it gets wilder, and the descriptions get longer, and the, and the intensity ramps up, and there's more intensity in these than what we would have seen in the seals uh, last week. The fifth angel, chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the, sh uh, came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not, who do not have the seal, God's seal on their foreheads. They, these locusts, were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. They were to torment the people who didn't have God's seals for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. In case you thought you were just reading a sci-fi book, you were not. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like that, doesn't it, with the, the bizarre descriptions here. This type of imagery and graphic language is typical of what they call apocalyptic writings. They would have been common in the first century. Maybe some of the John's readers in that century were familiar with apocalyptic writings. Certainly familiar, it's certainly comparable to some of the apocalyptic writings in the Old Testament, in the, in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. You get so this highly metaphor-rich language 
that's, that's meant in part to evoke emotion, that's to get a response out of us, not just to feed our intellect, but to get our whole, our whole being engaged with what's going on here. And it's a bit, it can be a bit like poetry. And so the meta, there's metaphors in here, and, and they teach us something. The metaphors, the symbolism, doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It just means it's referring to something else. The symbols refer to something else. And then it's upon us to figure out what is that something else. Sometimes in Revelation, we're told. Chapter 1, the lampstands, we're told. They're the churches. The stars in Jesus' hands were the angels. Other places, we're not told. And then we have to wrestle and have different opinions on, well, what are these things representing? And that's where the Old Testament comes in and Revelation itself can, can give us insight. So let's talk about a few specifics. For example, locusts. I don't believe these are actual insects coming up out of the abyss, out of the, the abode of the dead. I believe they represent something. Uh, there's real suffering, real judgment, yes, but not from insects. And so, again, this is one of the greatest challenges is where does the metaphor in Revelation end and, and, and start and stop? And that part is the challenge. It's a really a central issue to understanding Revelation. And uh, if we agree that locusts symbolize something else, what is that? What about the abyss, which actually Jesus, when he's confronting or some demons, when they were confronted by Jesus, talk about Jesus not casting them into the abyss, into the abode of demons. And so, you know, when we think about this literal versus symbolic, just take a moment as an aside here, I'm unaware of anyone who takes every, everything in Revelation literal. Like everything, whether it's an insect, a lampstand, I don't know if anyone takes everything literal, but I don't know if anyone who takes everything is completely symbolic. And so that leaves this very kind of this squishy middle area of where, where do, how do we decide that? And that's where we get into wrestling matches, arm wrestling on deciding which is which. So that is a challenge, and I hope that makes sense. And that's why I'm going to mention this at the end. It's why we have to be so patient as we study Revelation and be kind of slow to develop our opinions and make sure we're studying the whole scriptures and having good conversations and looking at, at the flow of Revelation and what's it all about. We can't just jump to quick conclusions because often there's more here because of this style of writing. So let's get into some specifics here in chapter 9. Verse 1, there's a star that had fallen from heaven. Is that a literal star, basically a, a, a sun in the, in the sky that's fallen? No, I believe it symbolizes something. Chapter 1 talks about the stars in Jesus' hands representing angels. I think, my opinion is, that's what he's referring to. I don't think it's one of God's angels. I think it's one of Satan's, a.k.a. demons. It's a demon. Perhaps it's Satan himself. Was he given an actual key? I'm not so sure. There was an actual physical key. It's made out of metal. I don't think so. But he's allowed by God to do something and to allow these locusts, which I believe are demons, to come out of the abyss. And so these locusts, again, very graphic language, uh, it's like an, they're like an army coming out to bring destruction. And the reason I think they're, they're demons, one is I think just the, the reading the text, I think it's obvious they're not, to me it's obvious they're not insects. So then we can look at, for example, the book of Joel. Joel speaks a lot about insects as a plague on the people of Israel as part of God's judgment on them. I think there's a literal representation of locusts, physical insects that came and devoured all the plants in the land. But I think also in, 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 in Joel, there's an indication there's some future judgment coming, and God uses the metaphor, the same literal metaphor, the same literal locust, He uses that as a metaphor to explain coming judgment on Israel. 
And I think if we take that, it seems to make sense to me that whatever is going on here, there's some kind of judgment that God is bringing, and it involves demonic activity, being allowed by God to bring His judgment on the world. We can wrestle with, has this already occurred? Someone hold that. Has it been happening throughout the ages, church age, or is it still to, to come in the future? Some combination. We have to wrestle with that. I'm not sure I have a complete answer on that. But the, again, the overall purpose, we just have to keep going back to that. What is the purpose that God is doing here? God is vindicating his people and he's vindicating his holy name. He will bring justice in the end. If not some of it now on earth, it will for sure happen later. Verse 4, he talks about those who don't have God's seal on their foreheads. First, God does not permit these demons to harm his own people. And then he says, but they can harm others, anyone who doesn't have the seal of God on them. Well, let's talk about what are the, what are the seals. We saw that in chapter 7, uh, that God seals his people. We find it in Ephesians 1 that God has sealed. Anyone who's believed in Christ, God has sealed, not with a physical mark, but he's sealed with his Holy Spirit. So if you know Christ, you, God has marked you as his own. And we have Old Testament examples of, being, of God's people being marked, like in, like in Exodus. At the end of the Exodus, or right before Israel was at the end of the 10th plague, Israel was to take blood and mark or seal, you might say seal their doorposts with the blood, and the, the angel of death would pass over, would deliver them from God's judgment. I think there's implications here for a similar kind of thing. God somehow, whether it's physically or, or, or symbolically, is marking his people and he will not let Satan cross certain lines. Always the case, and we see it certainly here. So God here is wisely and sovereignly ruling over his adopted children, and he's never going to take his eye off them. He's never, nothing ever slips up with God like, oops, sorry, I forgot to catch that. Didn't mean for you to get hurt like that. It will never happen. God never takes his eye off us. And whether that's our normal everyday trials or whether we are enduring severe persecution like some of the Christians were in this century or even probably literally millions, tens of millions around the world today, either way, God does not take his eye off us. And we can find great comfort in that and great solace in that, that even in hardships, even if I'm put to death for my faith, God is ruling in graciousness, in attentiveness, and wisdom over our lives. And we don't have to worry or fret. Because like here and back in chapter 8, even the prayers of the saints, they're a fragrant aroma to God, and He will not forget us. Then verse 12, down to verse 12, he's, uh, John writes that the fifth trumpet is the first woe and two more are to come. Basically, trumpets five, six, and seven, there's a greater intensity and they're marked by declaring them as woe. And if you look throughout the Bible, the word woe is almost always associated with judgment, some kind of doom that was coming on someone, both Old and New Testament. And so there's something more profound, more significant, more intense about these last three trumpets. So let's read about the second woe, which would be trumpet number six, verse 13. 
The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur, and the word sulfur can also mean brimstone. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur, or brimstone, that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people, these last two verses are fascinating. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Well, again, a lot to unpack here, and we'll only be able to scratch the surface. But what about these four angels bound at the Euphrates? I believe because it says they were bound and then released, these are probably demonic angels because God's angels would not be bound. So they're, they're released and let go to do, wreak their havoc. Um, and then verse 16, we see the number 200 million. Again, we have to ask, is this literal or symbolic? Most commentators that I've seen, uh, in fact, well, most would take it as symbolic. In fact, one commentator I read, he says he sees this number as symbolic, but almost every other number in Revelation he sees as literal. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. He said that. I don't believe, I, I've, I'm somewhere more in the middle that many of the numbers are more symbolic, but most commentators would say this is symbolic. And then verse 17, these horses and riders, the description here is just bizarre and graphic, and what do we do with this, we wonder. And then verse 18, one-third of the population we had one-fourth back in the seals. Now it's one-third. If you remember your fractions, one-third is more than one-fourth. It's 25, 33%. Okay, so if this number is literal, we're just, I mean, we read this and we're left speechless. And we think of the severity of God's judgment on this earth. It's staggering on the world that has rejected its creator. And as I, th as I said, verse 20 and 21 are so telling and so grieving in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all their pain, these people could have called out to God for mercy and he probably would have relented. That's just his heart. They, they had a moment, they had an opportunity to finally yield to God and bow their knee to their Lord and Savior and their Creator. But it says they refused. They refused. Twice we're told they would not, they did not repent and sometimes we may think God's wrath is too severe. His judgments are too harsh. But in the midst of all this pain, these people could have repented. They could have discovered mercy, but they did not. And I wonder, sometimes I wonder if the only thing that's, that's as amazing as God's mercy is man's stubborn defiance before their Creator.
Before moving on to some application about our text today, next week we're going to read through chapters 10 and 11, and that section is mostly like chapter 7 was. Again, most of that section we're going to read next week is an interlude. It kind of breaks the story between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, just like we did in the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And so we won't read about the seventh trumpet until next week at the end of chapter 11. So let's try to connect these wild chapters of Revelation to our own lives while we're holding on to this big picture of what Revelation's about. So first thing I want to mention is that we ought to, as we read this passage, we ought to rejoice that God has sealed his followers. If you know Jesus Christ, he's marked you. Maybe someday you'll get a literal mark on your forehead. I don't know, but I know for sure he's already sealed you and you are his. He has identified you. He owns you. And he will not let anyone take you away from him. Verse chapter 5 says he's purchased us with his blood. Chapter 6, chapter 8 says he hears the prayers of the saints. Chapter 7 and 8 says he sealed his followers. Ephesians 1 says he sealed us with his spirit. He's guaranteeing us redemption. God owns us. He adopts us. We're his treasured possession. That ought to change our lives. Perhaps we've, in this world, we've been abandoned, we've been neglected, someone's forsaken us. God will never do that to his chosen ones, to those whom he has sealed. He is loyal, protective, devoted to his people, and he will never pour out his wrath. And he will deliver them from his wrath, just like in chapter where it says these demons, these locusts were not permitted to those who had the seal of God on their forehead. There will never be condemnation for God's people, only commendation. Look at those two words there. Condemnation, commendation, almost the exact same letters, just very slight difference in letters. You just rearrange the letter, but the the impact of those two words is as far as the east is from the west. If you know Christ, you will never be condemned. You will only be commended because you are His He has redeemed you. He bought you with his son's blood. No one, not even God, will or can ever take that from us. And because we belong to us, he hears our prayers, certainly hears our prayers on this earth, and he hears the prayers even of martyred saints before the altar in the heavenly place. And those who have suffered unjustly for the name of Jesus will not be forgotten. And those who, the guilty will not go free and justice will be accomplished one way or another. We can be assured of that and we can rest in that or rejoice in that. Second, out of this passage I see we should long for justice both on earth and in heaven. We should. To have pure justice is such a beautiful thing. And deep down in our hearts, Everyone in this world wants to see justice accomplished in this life. We want that. In fact, injustices generally can enrage us. We're made in God's image. God is the God of justice. We are like him in that way. We want justice. We don't always have a right perspective on it. I mean, think of what this world would be without justice, even this world. Two stories, I think, of it that were in the news in the last couple of weeks There was an Iowa native who was serving as a missionary in Jamaica seven years ago, and he was killed. 
The trial for his killer was finally happened last month, seven years later. And the family went down there. Uh, these believers went down there and sat in on the, court, the courtroom, and the killer was convicted. And the family said they were satisfied because justice had been accomplished. They had to wait seven years for it, though. That's a long time. Or a month ago, a man in Memphis, Tennessee, Tyree Nichols, was killed by five police officers, and the family wants justice. Rightfully so. We should long for justice. And how chaotic this world is when we don't get it, how infuriating it is. And we all know this, even on small scales that are kind of funny, actually, even you teenagers that are in the room, or those of you who used to be teenagers, which I think is about every one of us, when, you know, when we're at home and our brother or sister gets an advantage over us, what do we say to mom and dad? That's not... Oh, you guys were teenagers. You didn't know that. I'm sure it was your brother or your sister who always shouted that and not you. We rightfully long for justice. We don't always think of it clearly, and when, it's, when justice is coming down on us, we, we sure want to get out of it. I get that. Okay, now, but we're talking about justice, but you might be thinking... Well, wait, I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. And yes, you are correct. It's both. We are, we are. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 at the end of, I think it's at the end of that chapter, he says we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We're to love them and to pray for them. Even when you are being persecuted, you are being treated unjustly in the name of Christ, which is about as great of an injustice as you can imagine. Basically, as we have been shown mercy, we are to show mercy. Even the disciple Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as he was being killed, what did he pray? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He was just mimicking the words that Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we know that Romans 12 tells us not to seek vengeance because that belongs to the Lord. It's God's job to bring vengeance God will deal, whether it's in Revelation or in other places, we know that God will deal with perfect and holy justice at the end. But until then, we are to have also a heart of love, the heart of mercy, even for those who want to harm us. So we've got this, what seems like a tension there. We've got this, we're commanded to long, to, to plead for mercy, to hope for mercy, even pray for mercy on those who hurt us. But at the same time, we can have a longing that justice will be done, but it's God's work to do it, not ours. And we can pray for earthly justice and God will remember our prayers and they will go up to him like a fragrant aroma and he will remember and make all things right in the end. God has sealed his followers. They belong to him. And he will ensure that justice is done to any who harm his children. And we can take heart from that. Third, from this section, I think all of us, if you know Jesus, you're following him. You don't need to worry or fear about coming suffering. I can just guarantee you are all going to suffer in this world you're all going to suffer in varying degrees. It might be from persecution. 
It might just be what life brings. You know, we get cancer, we get sick, we have car accidents, people hurt, all kinds of things. We are going to suffer, but never God's wrath. Only His careful, fatherly training that He is doing in our lives. And we can have confidence as we see in Revelation that the genuine follower of Christ can overcome, they will overcome because Jesus Christ has overcome. He is on the throne. He rules over all. He is the Lamb of God who has brought about victory because of His death and resurrection. That means we will be victorious even in the midst of our suffering. He's the judge of all the earth who will bring a perfect and righteous judgment someday soon. Back a few weeks ago, we proposed, Matt, one week, I did the next, we proposed as a main theme for the entire book this, this quote, the central message of Revelation is that believers can overcome the tribulations of life, even persecution and martyrdom because of the victory won by the Lamb of God. Now, if that is a good representation, and we can debate that, but if that's a good representation of the central message of Revelation, then that helps us here even in chapters 8 and 9. We know from earlier in the book that followers of Jesus will be persecuted. They were being persecuted. In the letters to the church, Jesus talked, in the seven churches, Jesus talked about that. One of their own, Antipas, was, had already been killed. But God hears their prayers and He will take action and He is not ignoring our cries. He will never forget us. He will never forsake us. And if you have believed in Jesus Christ, be confident of this. God really loves you and He is paying attention to your life. Even in the most severe of events that can happen on this earth. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. So we can uh, struggle to understand words and verses here at Revelation, but we have to remember what's the overall point here is that God is going to win. God is always going to win. So we don't need to be afraid. And finally, I just want to encourage us to be patient as we go through Revelation. Whether it's this series or on into future years, just be patient we're now in week five of this book, and it's, it is, I think most people would agree, it's the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. You've heard all these strange things so far, unique visions. You're going to hear even more. Honestly, I find Revelation can be like learning a foreign language. It's like, what do I do with all this stuff? All these new terms, and we've got all the challenges. We've got literal versus symbolic, and then we've got the four major viewpoints. We've got post-millennial, amillennial, historic premillennial, dispensational premillennial, and then there's a fifth. There's a, I have no clue whatsoever millennial. <laughs> you know, we're just like, ah, I don't know what to do, and it takes a while. We have to be kind of patient and learn and understand different arguments. And then Dave mentioned last week there's four common approaches. We've got the preterist, the historicist, idealist, futurist. And our heads can just start spinning with all this. Let me just say, just, just be patient. Just slow down, take it, study it. Don't jump to fast conclusions. It, there's, it, there's a depth here. There's a complexity here. And let me be honest with you. Because of that complexity, I mean, I love to study the Bible. I've been doing it for 40-some years. But honestly, Revelation is something I just kind of avoided for a lot of years. Not completely. I'd read it. I'd do a little bit here and there. But to really dig in, like, I've, like we pastors have been doing the last 16, 18 months, I've just kind of avoided that 
because I thought, you know, if all these really godly uh, students of the Bible, they, I mean, they all, they love the Lord, they, they have all these different opinions, and they can't come into agreement, how am I going to possibly figure it out? That was sort of my, 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 my conclusion. But even if we're perplexed, may we not forget some of the very first words in this book. And Jesus said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. There is blessing in reading and studying and obeying this book. There's, there's good that will come to your life, to our church's life, because our intention is to literally read aloud every single verse in this book. We might not comment on everything, but we want to read it aloud because there's a blessing there, and there will be for you in the years to come. So there's lots of opinions, lots of, con- lots of confusion, lots of you know, lot, even arm wrestling. We get into arguments. But here, I think, are a few things that we all must agree on. No matter what our viewpoints are, premillennial, postmillennial, all those kinds of things, we all must agree on a few things. One is Jesus Christ promised to come back again soon, literally, physically, bodily. He's coming back and he's going to be king. He promises to give us eternal, glorious, resurrected bodies free from sorrow and pain. That is part of the core of our Christian faith. We must believe that, all of us. Third, he tells it to set our ultimate hope, our ultimate longing for his return and ushering in this eternal glorious kingdom. Don't hope in all these earthly, temporal, unpredictable things. Hope in something that is rock solid sure. Fourth, he promises that justice will be fully satisfied someday because he's coming back as judge. Everything will be put right on that day. All who love Christ, all who've been sealed by him will be honored and rewarded. All who reject him will be condemned. And one other thing, there's more we could list here. Until he returns, he says, be ready. Be ready for me to come back. Live for him. Long for him. Be on mission for him. Speak of him to this world. These things and a few more, those are things that every one of us can and should agree upon, even while we're trying to figure out all the details of Revelation. So if we think back to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, I mentioned we'll face hardships. Some of us maybe will be persecuted. The temptations of this this world will be a challenge to us as we saw in those churches. The temptations of false teachings and immoral behavior and all that the world has to offer. Yet in the face of that, Jesus promises there will be victory in the end. Cling to him. Cling to the one who has already conquered Because as he has conquered, so will we. And this is our true hope. Let's pray. Lord, you are the the ruler of all. And all of us should we want to tremble before you. We, we love you. We know you love us, and yet you are so awesome. You are so powerful that we tremble before you. And we contrast that with your mercy that you're so kindly, mercifully, patiently offered life through your son. You're so kind. And yet you're so holy and just, and all this is, <laughs> you, you hold it all. 
Help us to know you better. All of your holy attributes. To understand you in all of your fullness. And then to trust you more fully. To love you more passionately. And to obey you more wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.